Section 4 of The Pastoral Loves of Daphnis and Chloe. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Read by Bonita Dominguez. The Pastoral Loves of Daphnis and Chloe by Longus, translated by George Moore. Book the Fourth. It fell out, however, for one of the lord's retainers to come from the town with the news that the master would arrive before the vintage to view the damage that the Methamnians had done to his fields, and the season being advanced and the great heats over, Lamont had no time to lose and was busy every day in the house and the gardens, anxious that the master's eye should fall upon nothing that was displeasing to him. He scoured the fountain so that the water should be pure and clear, and the manure heap in the courtyard was carried away lest a bad smell should reach the master's nostrils, and the orchard he tidied so that the master might find it more beautiful than he had expected. A beautiful and pleasing place this orchard was, one worthy of a king's inheritance, half a quarter of a league in length, on high ground, five hundred paces wide, wherefore almost as broad as it was long. Now in this orchard were all kinds and sorts of trees, the apple, the pear, the myrtle, the pomegranate, the fig, and the olive and a high-growing vine that trailed over the apple and pear trees seeming to vie with them in fruitage as it ripened all these were of man's cultivation but there were also forest trees that bore no fruit and planted themselves such as the laurel the plane the cypress the pine and over their branches ivy trailed with bunches of berries already black imitating the grape the fruit trees were in the center of the orchard, where they might be safer, and those that bore no fruit were on the fringes, a sort of rampart, all close like a hedge, a sort of little unmortared wall. There was order and excellent distribution, sufficient spacing being allowed between the trunks of the trees for them to increase and to develop, their branches, however, meeting and interweaving overhead so beautifully that nature seemed like art. Also there were beds and borders of flowers, natural flowers of nature's own sowing, and flowers, too, that man had sown. The roses, the hyacinths, and the lilies were man's gifts to the garden. The violets, the narcissi, and the daisies were nature's. There were flowers in the spring, shadows in summertime, fruits in autumn, pleasure and content all the year round. Every opening in the trees discovered the great plain below, with shepherds keeping watch over their flocks, and thence were to be seen the ships on the sea, coming and going along the coasts, a continual pleasure added to the other pleasances of this place. In the middle of the orchard, at the meeting of two paths that cut it a lawn and across, there was a temple dedicated to Bacchus, the altar clothed with ivy, the temple overrun by a vine and within the temple was the story of Bacchus painted, Semele giving birth, Ariadne asleep, Lycurgus bound, Pentheus torn, Indians overcome, Tyrrhenians changed into dolphins, and satyrs gaily vintaging and treading the grapes, and everywhere Bacchantes leading the dances forward. 
Pan was not forgotten, but was shown seated on a rock plain, it would seem, a music for the common prophet of the Bacchantes that danced, and the satyrs treading in the wine-presses. In this orchard of mixed art and nature, Lamon was busy pruning and cutting the dry and dead branches, and raising and rehaining the fallen vines. He crowned Bacchus daily with new wreaths, and devised a rill whereby he brought water from a fountain, for Daphnis had found a springhead, now called Daphnis's fountain, and the flowers were sprinkled with the water from it. Lamon had a word to say to Daphnis about his goats. He would do well to fatten them as speedily as possible, for the master, not having seen his flocks and herds for a long time, would inspect them carefully. But Daphnis had no doubt that he would get praise for his flock, for he had doubled the number of the she-goats that had been given to him. Not one of them had been ravened away by a wolf, and they were all in prime condition, fat as sheep. All the same, to raise himself in the master's esteem, and to make sure of his consent to the marriage, he gave all his time and care to the flock, striving hard for further improvement of it, leading it to the fields in the early morning, and returning in the dusk. Twice a day he watered the flock, and his eyes were always open for the best pasturage. He remembered to get new bowls, a stock of milking pails, and a great number of cheese racks. Nor did his diligence stop at this. He oiled his goat's horns, cleansed and combed their shag, till whosoever saw the flock would take it for one sacred and dedicated to Pan. Chloe labored with him, neglecting her yoes, and Daphnis thought that it was her doing that his flock appeared so fine. Whilst they were thus busy, another messenger came from the city, with an order that the vintage was to begin at once, and that he was to remain in charge till the wine was made, and then to return to the town for his master, who would not arrive until the last fruits were gathered at the end of autumn. The messenger's name was Eudromus, which signifies a runner, and his business was to run wherever he was sent. He was well received with good cheer, and the vintage was begun, and so heartily that within a few days the grapes were gathered, pressed, and the wine drawn off into jars, a number of the finest bunches, however, being left on the branches, so that those who came from the town could form an idea of the pleasure of the vintage, and think they had been there. When Eudromus was ready to leave, Daphnis bethought himself of what presents he could give him, and he gave what a goat-herd could give, some beautiful cheeses, a kid, and the skin of a she-goat whose shag was long, wherewith he might cover himself in winter whilst traveling. And he was glad of it, kissed Daphnis, and promised to give a good account of him to their master. And thus it was he returned to the town well disposed to them all, Daphnis remaining in the fields with Chloe, both in great trouble of mind, her trouble not less than his, for she remembered his youth and that he had seen nothing except his goats, the hills, peasants, and herself, and very soon he was going to see his master, whose name he had barely heard till now. She was anxious to know how he would speak to his master, and was alarmed about their marriage, fearing that it would disappear like a dream or a whiff of smoke. And so troubled by thoughts were they, that their kisses were henceforth mixed with fears, and their embraces almost mournful, and in dread they lay in each other's arms, as if the master was already there and could see them. 
and as if these troubles were not enough, another fell upon them. Not far away was a neat herd named Lampus, a crafty, dangerous fellow, who had thought that he might get Chloe for wife, and for that end made Dryas many presents, but now getting wind of Daphnis's suit, and fearing that he would get her if the master were satisfied with him, he began to seek for means whereby he might provoke the master against him in Lamont, and knowing that the master set great store in his gardens, he thought how these might be ruined and spoilt. If he set to work to fell the trees, he would be seen and heard, so he thought that it would be better for him to make havoc among the flowers, which could be done easily at night, and passing in one night by the little door in the wall, he tore and trampled them under foot just like a wild boar would, and then withdrew, nobody having seen him. When Lamond the next day, on going into the garden, as was his custom, to water his flowers, saw the place laid waste as if by an enemy in open warfare, or a robber, he tore his jacket, crying, Oh, gods! so loudly that Mertail, leaving her work, ran to him, and Daphnis, leaving his goats to themselves, returned to the house, and seeing the great damage done, they cried aloud and wept, and though vain indeed it was to grieve for the flowers, they dreaded their lord's anger. It was not wonderful that these people should weep. Even a stranger, who would never see the garden again, would have been moved by the sight of flower beds and borders dug up, and all the flowers thrown along the walks. Here and there a bloom had so far escaped outrage that it still shone as it lay, fair and resplendent, and these were still beset by the bees, murmuring continually like mourners. And Lamont, with gestures of despair, spoke these words, Oh, my rosaries are broken down and torn, my violet beds are trodden into the ground, my narcissi and hyacinths are torn up, a bad and wicked man it must be who has served me in this wise. The springtime will return, but these will not flower again. The summer will come, and the garden be without a bloom. The autumn is nigh, and there are not enough flowers to tie into a posy. Thou, Bacchus, hadst thou no pity for these poor flowers that have been, in thy presence, before thine eyes, ruined. This wicked man has robbed thee of many crowns. How will I dare to show my master his garden? What will he say to me when he sees all this wreckage? Will he not hang his old servant, like a second Marsyas, to one of those pines? And will he not, perchance, hang Daphnis too, thinking that his goats have done this mischief, thinking he had watched them ill? These words, tears ran down their eyes again. The flowers were forgotten. They wept for themselves. Chloe wept for poor Daphnis, who might be hanged from the pine tree, and prayed to the gods the master, waited for so long, should not come, and her days passed wearily in thoughts that she already saw her Daphnis stripped for scourging. Eudromus returned the same evening, bringing the word that they might expect the old master three days hence, but that his son would arrive on the morrow and they fell to talking, asking each other how they might tell the story of the ruined garden, calling into their counsel Eudromus, who, being well disposed to Daphnis, said that the young master should be told how the mischief had happened, 
and he promised he would do all he could to help them, and he could do much, for the young master had consideration for him, he being his foster brother. And on the morrow they did all that he had told them. A stylus arrived on horseback, bringing with him, also on horseback, a friend to keep him company, a seeming time-server, some years older than a stylus, as might be judged from their beards, for a stylus had no more than a little down on the chin, whereas Natho's chin had known the razor for some years. And the young man had barely dismounted when Lamon, taking Mertail and Daphnis with him, threw himself at his feet and begged of him to have pity upon a poor old man and save him from the anger of his father and the rather as it was through no fault of his that the mischief had been done a stylus pitied them and on entering the garden and seeing how it had been wrecked he promised to take it all upon himself and say that it was his horses that had broken their tethers and trampled with their hooves on the beautiful flowers lamon's pride and care and for this kindly promise Lamon and Mertail prayed that the gods might grant him the fulfillment of all his desires, and Daphnis brought him some choice presents, such as young goats, cheeses, and nests of birds with the nestlings in them, vine shoots with bunches of grapes upon them, and branches of apple trees red with fruit, and Daphnis also gave him fragrant lesbian wine, the most enjoyable of all. A stylus thanked him and seemed glad to receive the gifts, and whilst waiting for his father found pleasure in hunting the hare, as befits a young man of good family and fortune who has come to take the air of the fields. But Natha was a guttler, who ate and drank to repletion, and after drinking appeased his lusts, in a word, he was all gullet and belly and what is beneath the belly. And when Daphnis came with his presence, Natha was struck by his beauty, and certain that the town could show nothing that would compare with him, fell to thinking how he might make his acquaintance, for it did not occur to him that he might fail to get his way with a young goatherd such as he. And that his desires might be fulfilled, he found reasons not to go hunting with the stylus and wandered instead to the place where Daphnis was watching his beasties, saying that he had come to look at the flock. And to get his way more easily with Daphnis, he began his courtship by praising the she-goats, begging him to play upon his flute some shepherd's song, and promising him that very soon he would use his influence, which was great, with the master to procure his freedom. And believing that his promises and flatteries had brought the goat-herd to his will, he lay in wait for him in the evening when he was bringing home his flock to the fold and running to him he kissed him first and then told him that he wished to receive from him the kindness that the she-goat afforded to the buck for a long time daphnis did not understand what he meant and at the last answered him that it was natural that the buck should jump upon the she-goat but that he had never seen a buck jump upon another buck nor did the rams mount one upon the other instead of upon the yos nor did the cocks tread each other instead of the hens all the same natho laid his hand upon him as if he would take him by force but daphnis pushed him back roughly and as he was drunk and could barely stand on his feet threw him on his back and ran away like a young hare leaving to some passer-by the business of picking him up 
and henceforth Daphnis kept out of his way, leading his she-goats to graze first in one place and then in another, avoiding him sedulously and keeping an eye on Chloe. And Notho, having discovered that Daphnis was not only beautiful, but had a will of his own and could enforce it, ceased to importune him and sought instead a stylus who he believed could refuse him nothing and might be persuaded to give him daphnis he could not however find the occasion he needed for dionysophanes and his wife clarista arrived and there was in the house and about it a great pother of horses valets men and women and whilst waiting to get a stylus alone he prepared for his ear a long speech about his passion Dionysophanes was turning grey, but he was tall and so well built that he could hold his own with many a younger man, one of the richest of the citizens of his town, and with as kind a heart as any. He sacrificed the first day of his arrival to the gods of the fields and woods, to Ceres, Bacchus, and Pan, and the nymphs, and called his family together for the feast. On the following days he visited Lamont's farm, and seen everywhere good tilth, vines well pruned, and the orchard as beautiful as before, for Silas had taken all the blame for the flowers. He was pleased to find everything in such good order, praised Lamont for his diligence and promised him his freedom, and that done, he bethought himself of his flocks and the goat herd that watched them. Chloe ran away and hid herself in the woods, frightened by the coming of such a grand company. Daphnis remained and waited for his master, his loins covered with a goatskin of lawn shag, a new wallet slung over his shoulders, holding in one hand a cheese freshly made, and with the other leading some suckling kids. If Apollo had ever been neat-herd to Laomedon, he must have appeared like Daphnis when he stood silently, his face red with blushes, and his eyes downcast before the master, offering him his gifts. And then Lamon, speaking for him, said, This is Daphnis, master, thy goat-herd. Out of the fifty she-goats and the two bucks that thou gavest me, he has made a hundred she-goats and ten bucks. See how fat they are, with long, shaggy hair, and not a broken horn among them, and well instructed, too, in music, and obedient to it, doing all he wishes at the sound of his flute. Clarista, being present, said that she would like to see these things done, and Daphnis was told to play his flute as he was accustomed to do when he wished to direct his flock and he was promised if he succeeded a new jacket shirt and shoes then daphnis standing under an oak and with all the company about him took his flute from his wallet and blew softly into it immediately the she-goats stopped all raising their heads then he blew for them to graze and immediately they dropped their muzzles and browsed then he played a sweet low tune and at once they were all lying on the ground Another set of notes, clear and sharp, and they fled into the wood as if at the approach of a wolf, and then at the note of recall they returned from the wood and lay down about his feet. Never did a master have serfs more obedient to his orders than these she's were to the sound of the flute, at which the company wondered, and of all Clarista, who said that she would give what she had promised to the gentle goat herd, who was so handsome and played his flute so well. 
After that they repaired to the house and supped, and they sent out to Daphne some share of the food, which he received and ate with Chloe joyfully, curious to eat food cooked according to town fashion, and having now good hope that he would be able to obtain his master's consent to his marriage. But the sight of Daphnis with his flute had inflamed Notho, and thinking that without Daphnis his life was not life at all, he took advantage of a moment when a stylus was walking alone in the garden to take him to the temple of Bacchus, and there to kiss his hands and his feet. And a stylus asking why he did this and what he wished to say, "'Your poor Notho is undone, master,' said he, "'for I, who till now was in love only with the table loaded with good cheer, and to whom nothing was so desirable as a jar of old wine,' and who said that all the use of middling were not to be compared with thy cooks find nothing in this world amiable or beautiful but daphnis yes i would like to be one of his she-goats and would leave all that is served at thy table meat fish preserved fruits if i might eat grass to the sound of his flute and under his crook brows on leaves but do thou, my master, save the life of thy Notho, and vanquish unvanquishable love, else I swear by thee, who art my god, that after having filled my belly I will take my knife and go to Daphnis's threshold, and there I shall kill myself, and then thou'lt have no one to whom thou canst say, My good little Notho. The young man was of such kindly heart, himself being acquainted with love's pain, that he could not bear to see Notha weep and kiss his feet and hands again. So he promised that he would ask Daphnis of his father, that he might bring him as a servant to the town, and that Notha should have his will of him. Then for comfort he asked him, laughing, if he was not ashamed to kiss the little shepherd, Lamont's son, and mocked at the pleasure he would get in line with the goat-herd, saying which he snipped as if he had suddenly got wind of the buck. But Notho, who had learnt at the tables of rich profligates all that could be said or told about love, and thought that he could justify his passion, answered with some good sense, "'He who loves, O my dear master,' does not think of all that there is nothing in this world if it have beauty that may not inflame us some have loved a plant some a river others a wild beast and what sadder condition of love is there than to fear what one loves for myself what i love is a serf by fate but ennobled by his beauty does not his hair resemble a hyacinth flower and under his eyebrows his eyes brighten like burnished stones who can be insensible to his damask cheek, to that red mouth furnished with teeth white as ivory? Who is so insensible, such an enemy of love, as not to desire all this? I gave my love to a shepherd, and in doing so do I not find exemplars among the gods? Anchises, a neat herd, was sought by Aphrodite in his fields. Branches led she-goats to feed, and Apollo loved him. Ganymedes was a shepherd, and the lord of all things raped him away for his pleasure. Let us not despise a child to whom the beasts themselves are obedient. Rather should we be thankful to the eagles of Jupiter that allow such beauty to remain still upon the earth. At these words the stylus began to laugh, saying what great sophisters love makes, and henceforth he was on the watch for an occasion to speak of this matter to his father. 
But Eudromus, having overheard a great part of the plan, and detesting that so fair a young fellow as Daphnis should be given over to the pleasure of this drunkard, and being well inclined towards him himself, wishing him all good fortune, went at once and told the story to both Daphnis and Lamon. And shocked, overwhelmed, Daphnis came to a sudden resolution, to fly with Chloe or to die with her. But Lamon called Mertail from the yard. We are lost, wife, said he. Now has come the time to reveal the secret. Come what may, though we lose our herds and the rest, and I remain like an ox in the stall, doing nothing, as the saying is. I swear by the nymphs and by Pan that I will keep silence no longer, but tell Daphnis's story, will declare how I found him, will say how I reared him, will show what I found with him. I will do all this so that this gangrel rogue will know what he is and to whom he is paying his addresses. Go and fetch the signs and tokens. And that said, they entered the house. But a stylus coming upon his father auspiciously asked that Daphnis should return with them to Middleline, saying that it was a pity so pleasing a lad should be left in the fields and one who would soon learn the ways of the town from Notho. The father gave his consent at once, and calling for Lamon and Murtail, he told them the good news that Daphnis, instead of herding the goats, would for the future wait on his son Astylus in the town. To replace him he promised two other shepherds, and his decision becoming known, the other slaves ran to one another with the tidings, esteeming Daphnis a pleasant addition to their company. Lamon thereupon asked permission to speak, and he spoke in this manner. My master, I beg of thee to listen to me, a poor old man. I swear by the nymphs and god Pan that every word I speak is the truth. I am not Daphnis's father, nor was the happiness of carrying such a boy granted to my wife. He was exposed in the first months of his life by his parents, who may have had enough of older children but I found him abandoned by his father and mother, suckled by a she-goat, who for her mother mercy died a natural death and was buried by me in a corner of my garden. I found tokens that were left with him so that he might be afterwards recognized. I confess them to thee, and I keep them to this day, for they are signs that he came of a much higher rank than we are. I am not sorry that he should serve thy son Astylus and be to a handsome and good lord a handsome and good servant, but I cannot abide that Notho should take him to Middleling and make a wench of him. Lamont stopped speaking, like one suddenly struck dumb. He began to weep, and Notho, enraged, would have beaten him if Dionysophanes' stern face had not bade him forbear. Dionysophanes commanded a silence, and after thinking for a while he questioned the old man anew, enjoining him to tell the truth and not to invent tales in the hope that his son might be left with him. But Lamont persisted that all he had said was but the truth, calling on the gods and offering to submit himself to torture if he lied. Dionysophanes turned to Clarista, sitting beside him, and they examined the story they had heard together. For what purpose or what end should Lamont have invented it? Had he not been promised two goat herds for the one that was to be taken from him? How indeed could a rough peasant have invented such a story? 
Moreover, was it not plain that so handsome a lad could not have been born of such humble folk? So did they think and argue, till suddenly it seemed to them that they were wasting time in vain conjectures and guessing, and that what they should do was to view the signs and tokens which would tell if Lamont's story was a true one, and if Daphnis came of a higher rank than his foster parents. Mertail went away and came back with the old sack in which they had been kept. The first to see them was Dionysophanes, and when he saw the purple mantle with the clasp of gold and the knife with the ivory handle, he cried out, O Lord Zeus, and called his wife that she might see these things. And when she saw them, she cried out, O ye goddesses of fate, are not these the very things that we put with our child when we sent him to be exposed by our maidservant Sophrony? There is no doubt that these are the tokens that were left with him. My husband, the child is ours. Daphnis is thy son, and goat-herd of his father's she-goats. Dionysophanes shed tears of joy whilst his wife spoke, and kissed the tokens and signs of recognition. Astylus, having heard that Daphnis was his brother, dropped his robe and ran through the garden to be the first to kiss him. Daphnis seen him running towards him with many others, and hearing him cry, Daphnis! Daphnis! thought that this was to take him prisoner, threw away his flute and his wallet, and fled towards the sea to throw himself from the top of the rock. Daphnis, by some strange accident, might have been no sooner found than lost, if Astylus, guessing the reason of his flight, had not cried out from afar, Stop, Daphnis, have no fear, I am thy brother. Thy masters are thy parents. Lamont has told us all and shown us everything. Stop, look, how they come laughing. Kiss me the first. By the nymphs I speak the truth. On hearing the oath, Daphne stopped and waited for a stylus, who ran to him with open arms, and the two embraced. Then everybody in the house, men-servants, maid-servants, father and mother, came in turn to embrace and to kiss, rejoicing and weeping. Daphnis welcomed them all, but his first welcome was given to his father and mother, and it would have seemed that he had always known them, so warmly did he take them to his bosom. Hardly could he tear himself away from their arms, so quickly doth nature establish trust. For a moment even Chloe was forgotten by him. He was taken to the house and given beautiful and costly garments, and when these were donned he sat beside his father, who spoke these words. My children, I married when I was very young, and in no long time I had become, as I thought, a happy father, for the first child born to me was a son, the second a girl, and the third a stylus. I thought that three would ensure the continuance of my lineage, and this one coming after the others was exposed in his swaddles with rings and gems, looked on by me as funeral ornaments rather than tokens designed to make him known to us one day. But fortune counseled otherwise, for my eldest son and my daughter died of the same evil on the same day, and thou, Daphnis, by the providence of the gods hast been preserved to help us through our old age. All the same, Thou must not hate me, my child, for having exposed thee according to the wishes of the gods. And thou, Astylus, regret not that thou shalt have to share thy heritage with thy brother, for there are no riches in this world worth a good brother. 
Love each other, my children, and in respect of worldly goods vie with kings, for I will leave you large lands and well-trained servants, gold and silver, and whatsoever belongs to those that prosper. Only this land I single out as a gift to Daphnis, and with it Lamon and Myrtale and the goats that he has herded. He was still speaking when Daphnis started to his feet suddenly. Thy words have called something to my mind, father. I must go and water my goats. They must be thirsty by now, awaiting the sound of my flute before drinking, and I sit in here doing nothing. At this everybody began to laugh. Although now a master, Daphnis would still be a goat herd. Another was sent to do this service to the goats, and they sacrificed to Jupiter, the Savior, and a command was issued for a great feast. Gnotho alone did not dare to appear, for fear of Daphnis he had hidden himself all the day and the night in the temple of Bacchus as a suppliant. And the news immediately was carried hither and thither that Dionysophanes had found a son, and that Daphnis the goatherd was found to be the lord of the fields. And with the dawn the neighboring peasantry ran from all sides to rejoice with the young man and to make presents to his father. Among these Dryas was one of the first, Chloe's foster father. Dionysophanes would not have it otherwise, but that all should remain for the feast, having prepared a great store of bread, of wine, of game of all sorts, honey cakes in plenty, suckling pigs, and victims many were sacrificed to the protecting deities of the country. Then Daphnis gathered up all the tools of his trade, and these he presented to the gods. His wallet and his goatskin were given to Bacchus. Pan got his shepherd's pipe and his cross flute. His crook was presented to the nymphs with the milking pails made by his own hands. But first customs and practices are sweeter than a new fortune, and he could not yield these tokens of his past life without weeping many tears. He did not hang up the milking pails before milking the she-goats, and he did not give his pipe to Pan till he had played upon it once more, nor did he surrender his goatskin to Bacchus till he had donned it a last time, and before giving he kissed every one of these. He had then to bid his goats goodbye. He called the bucks one after another by their names. He drank once more from the springhead where many times he had drunk with Chloe, but he did not yet dare to speak of their loves, still watching for his occasion. And whilst he knelt unmindful of all but his offerings and sacrifices, Chloe sat alone in the fields, watching her sheep, poor forlorn girl, saying, Daphnis has forgotten me. He is thinking now of some rich marriage. Why did I not make him swear by the nymphs instead of by his goats? He has forgotten them, too. Even while sacrificing to the nymphs and to Pan, he has no thought to seek Chloe. He may have found in his mother's house a servant more beautiful than I am. Goodbye, Daphnis. Be happy. But there is no life for me. She was still immersed in these sad dreams when the neat-herd Lampus, helped by some other peasants, came to carry her off in the belief that Daphnis would think no more of marrying her, and that once she had fallen into his hands, Dryas would give his consent that she should remain with him. As he carried her away, the poor forlorn girl cried loudly for help, and one witness of this violent deed ran to Nape, who told Dryas, and Dryas ran to Daphnis, 
But he, though distraught by the tidings, did not dare to ask help from his father, and unable to endure his pain went to the edge of the garden and broke in lamentation. Oh, unhappy that I am in having discovered my parents. How much better it would have been for me to have watched always my beasties in the fields. How much happier was I when I was a serf with Chloe. Then I saw her. Then I kissed her. And now Lampus has ravished her away, and when the night comes he will lie with her, whilst I am eating and drinking, delighting in good cheer. In vain did I swear by my goats and by God Pan. Now while Daphnis uttered these complaints, Gnotho, lurking in the garden, was listening, and believing this to be a good occasion to make his peace with Daphnis, he called together some of Astylus's servants and went after Dryas, telling him that he must direct them to Lampus's cottage, and made all speed thither. And arriving in the nick, they surprised Lampus as he was dragging Chloe over his threshold, whom they plucked from his arms, and after beating with their sticks the shoulders of the rustics who had helped him in the rape, they looked round for Lampus, thinking to take him prisoner, but he had escaped in the confusion. A veritable triumph this was for Gnotho, who returned to the house when it was dark, bringing Chloe with him. Dionysophanes was in bed asleep, but Daphnis walked weeping in the orchard, deploring his fate. And after giving each to the other, Gnotho told him all he had done, praying Daphnis to forget the past, to keep him for a diligent servant, and not to drive him from his table, to die of hunger by the wayside. The sight of Chloe, the having Chloe in his arms, made it easy for Daphnis to come to terms with him, and having agreed to all he asked, he begged forgiveness of Chloe for his seeming neglect of her. And it not being a time for reproaches, they at once fell to thinking what their conduct should be, both coming quickly to the same mind, that their intended wedding should not be made known yet a while, but that he should continue to see her in secret, confessing his love of her to nobody but his mother. But Dryas was stubborn, and would not have it otherwise than that Daphnis's father should be told, and took it upon himself to persuade Dionysophanes to give his consent. On the morrow at daybreak he brought the signs and tokens that he had found with Chloe to Dionysophanes, whom he came upon in the orchard sitting with Clarista and their two children, Astylus and Daphnis, and this is what he said. The same need that obliged Lamont to confess his secret is upon me today. A like secret is mine to his, that I did not beget nor rear Chloe. Another begot her, and a yo suckled her in the cave of the nymphs. This I saw and marveled, and since then I have brought her up. Her beauty testifies that she is not of our blood, as much as the signs and tokens that I found with her, richer than any poor shepherd could afford. Look at them, and then search for her parents. For by some hap her kin may be one not unsortable with thine own, master." Dryas's words were cunningly planned, and they did not fall on unheeding ears. Dionysophanes, having Daphnis under his eyes and seeing him change color and turn aside to weep, knew at once that there must have been love passages between these twain. And being more mindful of his son than of somebody else's daughter, he considered carefully the story that Dryas had told, 
and when he had examined the signs and tokens that had been found with her, the gilt shoes, the embroidered hosiery, and the golden headdress, he called her to him and bade her be of such good cheer as was becoming to one who had found herself a husband and would very soon find her father and mother. She was put in Clarista's care, who gave her such clothes and jewelry as befitted Daphnis's future wife. But Dionysophanes, taking Daphnis aside, asked him if she was still a maiden. Daphnis swore that they had only kissed and embraced, and vowed always to belong one to the other, at which Dionysophanes was delighted, and laughing at the story of their rural oaths, he bade them to a banquet. And at this banquet could be seen how much nature can gain from art, for Chloe, gowned and with her hair caught up, appeared so much more beautiful in the present than she had ever been in the past, that even Daphnis hardly recognized her. And whosoever saw her in her array would have unhesitatingly affirmed upon oath that she was not Dryas's daughter. He was there at the feast, with Nape, Lamone, and Myrtale, all four couched together. On the days that followed, they sacrificed anew to the gods on Chloe's behalf, as they had done for Daphnis, setting up bowls of wine. And as Daphnis had done, she gave all the tools of her trade to the gods, her wallet, her flute, the skin she had worn, the pails into which she milked her yos, and poured wine into the springhead in the cave of the nymphs, for it was there she was found and suckled. She scattered chaplets and posies of flowers in the tomb of the yo, her foster mother, which Dryas showed her, piped a farewell to her flocks, and prayed to the nymphs that her natural parents should not be of such sort as would misbecome her alliance with Daphnis. When they had had enough of feasts and junketings in the fields, they bethought themselves of a return to Middling with a view to seeking out Chloe's parents so that the wedding need not be delayed any longer. Wherefore next morning they were busy betimes packing and parceling their goods and chattels, bidding Dryas goodbye and bestowing upon him another three hundred crowns, and upon Lamont the half-part of the land to sow and gather its harvest, and the she-goats with their goat-herds, four yoke of oxen, furred cloaks for winter-wear, and freedom for his wife Mertale. And these things done, they took the road to Middleline in a great pother of horses and wagons. As they did not arrive home till late at night, the citizens of the town knew nothing of what had fallen out, but on the morrow there was a great throng about Dionysophanes's house of men and women, the men to rejoice with the father that he had found his son. Their rejoicings redoubled when they saw what a handsome courtly lad he was and the women to rejoice with clarista not only upon the recovery of her son but also of a girl worthy of being his wife for chloe astonished them all so perfect was her beauty that it was not easy to imagine any one more beautiful briefly the town spoke of nothing else but the young man and the young girl saying that it was impossible to find a more beautiful pair Many prayers were offered up to the gods that the parentage of the girl might be found worthy of her beauty, and many rich Middleian matrons prayed the gods that Chloe might be reputed their daughter. But Dionysophanes, after having pondered long and arduously on this matter, retired to his bed, 
and a vision came in the heavy sleep that fell upon him in the morning. He saw the nymphs in the vision begging Eros to bring about the fulfillment of the wedding, making good his promise. Whereupon Eros slackened the string of his bow, and placing it beside his quiver, ordered Dionysophanes to invite the chief citizens of Mytilene to a feast at his house, and that when the last goblet was filled, the signs and tokens of recognition found with Chloe should be shown to each of the guests in turn, and that done, that they should sing together the epithalamium. And having had this vision in his sleep, Dionysophanes rose betimes and ordered his people to prepare a great festival at which all the delicate meats of the earth and the sea and the rivers and the marshes afford should be served, and when the night came all the chief citizens of Mytilene were his guests. And when the last goblet was filled for libations to Hermes, a servant of the house brought in a silver basin the signs and tokens, and these were shown in turn to the guests according to their rank. But none recognized these save one named Megacles, who because of his age was placed at the end of the table, and as soon as he saw them he remembered them and cried very loudly, O oh gods, what do I see here? My poor daughter, what has become of thee? Art thou alive, or did some shepherd steal these tokens that it was his luck to find in the fields? I beg of thee, Dionysophanes, to tell me whence thou hast these tokens of my child and do not grudge me that after thy finding of daphnis i too should find somewhat dionysophanes wished first of all that he should tell the company how he had exposed his child wherefore megacles still speaking with a loud voice said a long time ago i found myself without any means having spent all i had on plays and shows and on building galleys and manning them and whilst wasting my fortune on these things, a daughter was born to me, and being unwilling to rear her in the poverty from which it then seemed I could not escape, I exposed her with signs and tokens whereby she might be recognized, knowing that many desire even in this way to become parents. The child was carried to the cave of the nymphs and left under their guardianship and protection. Afterwards I grew rich again. From every side money came, but an heir to whom I might leave my wealth was denied to me. I was not even fortunate enough to beget a daughter, and the gods, as if knowing my desire, and to mock me, often sent me dreams that promised that a yo should make me a father. At these words Dionysophanes cried even louder than Megacles had done, and rising from the table he went to find Chloe, whom he brought back dressed richly yet modestly, and leading her to Megacles so that he might take her hands, he said, Here is the child that thou didst expose, Megacles. A yo by the providence of the gods suckled her for thee, just as a she-goat nourished my daftness. Take her with these tokens, and after taking her, give her in wedding to daftness. We both abandoned our children, and we have both refound them. They have been reared together, guarded by the nymphs, by Pan, and by Eros. Megacles was of the same mind, and when his wife Rhoda, whom he sent for, came, she found her daughter in her father's arms. Then they slept, remaining where they were, for Daphnis vowed he would not let Chloe go, not even to her father. 
and in the morning the twain begged their fathers and mothers to allow them to return to the fields, for they were still ill at ease in the town, and it was resolved to celebrate their wedding in the manner of shepherds. So they returned to Lamont's cottage, and introduced Demegocles, the foster parent of Chloe, Dryas, and his wife Nape was presented to Rhoda. And now all of them being in accord, preparations were begun for the nuptial festival. Megacles once more consigned his daughter Chloe to the guardianship of the nymphs, and among the many offerings that he made to the nymphs were the signs and tokens whereby his daughter had been brought back to him, and to Dryas he gave what was wanting to make his three hundred crowns ten thousand. The days being still fine and beautiful, Dionysophanes ordered a plentiful feast to be laid in the cave of the nymphs, with couches of green boughs, and upon these all the peasants of the neighborhood took their places. Lamon and Merteo were there, Dryas and Nape, Dorkin's kindred and friends, Philetus with his sons, Chromus and Lycoenium, even Lampus was present, being forgiven, and all that was said and done was according to village life and customs. One sang a reaping song, and all the jests and scorns and whimsies of the wine-presses were heard again. Philetus played his pipes and Lampus his flute, Daphnis and Chloe kissing each other meanwhile. The she-goats, too, wandered in and snatched at the green branches, much to the dislike of the guests that had come from the town, and Daphnis called them all by their names, tempting them with green branches, taking them by their horns and kissing them. Not that day only, but the best part of their lives they passed as shepherds, acquiring large herds of she-goats and yoes, remaining always staunch in their reverence for the nymphs and for god Pan and for Eros, always averse for meat, their choice going to fruit and milk, and, moreover, they gave their first child, a son, to be suckled by a she-goat, and to the second, that was a girl, was given the tit of a yo and these were named Philopemon and Agileia, and so they lived in the fields for long years and in great content. The cave of the nymphs was tidied with devotional hands, and it was adorned with images, and an altar was raised there to Eros the shepherd, and so that Pan might no longer remain uncovered under the pine, they built a temple in his honor, calling it the Temple of Pan the Warrior. All that was long afterwards, but now, the night having come, the guests accompanied them to their nuptial chamber, some playing the flute, others the pipes, others with lanterns and torches in their hands walked in front of them. And when they were on the threshold of the chamber, a nuptial hymn was begun in tones harsh and rude as the sounds of pickaxe and mattock. Meanwhile, Daphnis and Chloe lay naked in bed, where they exchanged kisses and embraces without closing an eye all the night. Wakeful as the night jars, Daphnis practicing with Chloe all that Lycoinium had taught him, and Chloe coming to understand that all they had done hitherto in the woods was but the play of children. End of Book the Fourth End of the Pastoral Loves of Daphnis and Chloe by Longus, translated by George Moore.